We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 155. Our guest today is a journalist for the New York Times and has been on staff with them for nearly a decade. She was a finalist in the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for local reporting when she talked about working conditions of nail salon workers. She is also a fellow horse girl and talks about how she navigated her life as a reporter, but also as an equestrian, and recently came out with the book Horse Crazy, the story of a woman and a world in love with an animal. If you haven't read it yet, you need to go read it. It would be the perfect book for you to read this summer. I was in tears, literally by page two. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Sarah maslin Near. I would love to hear about... I mean, everything about your life, because I think your life is so interesting with all the things that you do, but I would love to hear about how you first got into the horse world. Sure. So I cannot remember a time when I wasn't in the horse world. That's because my first ride was when I was two years old. And it's actually the story that I start my book with. I was convinced at age two, riding a horse for some reason, not a pony, really unreasonable, but my parents didn't know any better. I was convinced I was a cowgirl. So I insisted... I can canter, obviously, right? What two-year-old cowgirl? It was probably like my third ride. And I kicked that big quarter horse into a canter and promptly fell off. And my first memory of horses, actually my first memory of my whole life, which is not of being on a horse, but being off one. And I lay on the ground and everyone was screaming. And that's because the horse was on a lunge line, you know, as one learning to what should have been walk, but it ended up being canter. Yeah. Uh, and was coming right back around towards me, right where I lay, you know, dutiful, trusty horse in a nice lope, not stopping. And everybody started to shriek and I just lay there. And then the horse jumped over me. And that imprinted in my mind and my soul, this idea that horses would always take care of me. And wrongly or rightly, that has become my thread that has tied me to them, right? I should have walked away thinking horses are going to splatter me on the ground and they have, and they've broken my back a couple times since, Yeah, but instead was imprinted. They're always looking after me and that's how they became a part of my life. Oh, so cool. From that point in time, what did your younger years of riding, like your junior years look like? So I have an unusual equestrian pedigree in that I have none. I'm the daughter of two immigrants from New York City. My father's a Holocaust survivor, really no background in this horse world. And I'm from Manhattan. I mean, what is less horsey than a big city? Yeah. And so I managed to have them in my life by hook or by crook. I, I did find them on the weekends out in Long Island, but I also found them in New York City. So believe it or not, I rode in a stable on 89th Street in a townhouse. And the horses lived up on the third and fourth floors and in the basement. And they came down a ramp and I call it, you know, one of the wonders of the world, both that it existed and that the horses tolerated it. Wow. Um, and I would ride in essentially this parking garage and the parking garage had columns in it. So you would be going around and you would have to yell, you know, we, we called it quarter school and half school when you were turning and you'd have to scream like a taxi driver in a New York city street of you know, quarter school, half school. 
Don't wow. ever show them. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. And then we did do rides in Central Park, but the stables was not in Central Park. So you had to trot through city streets, dodging real taxi cabs uh, to get to this bucolic place to gallop. That's crazy. Wow. I didn't even know. I mean, what is that place called? I mean, is it still running today? Claremont Stables was the name and it closed in 2007. Okay. And there are still a couple places to ride in New York City. I'm actually on the board of a therapeutic riding organization called Gallup NYC, which Mm -hmm. has two stables uh, actually in Brooklyn and Queens and does 500 riding lessons a week for disabled children and adults. Wow. Yeah, so there's still horses in the city, and you can find them if you're horse crazy enough. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. So from going to that, having, you know, tastes here and there as much as you can do with horses in New York City, how did that then transition? Obviously, you became a journalist. You are an amazing reporter. You have you are a finalist in the Pulitzer Prize. You have done so much within, was that all within New York City? Were there times that you were living outside of the city? What did um, that kind of air, time in your life look like? Sure. So my journey with horses has been a through line through my journey in journalism, overlapping sometimes, but actually often kept on the DL. Mm. I cover very challenging corners of the world, very dark places and dark deeds. And I always worried that my, if I revealed that I had so much of my soul wrapped up in ponies, people wouldn't take me seriously. Mm. And actually, when I began to embark on the book, uh, I told a friend, I want to write a book. And he said, well, what would you write about? I think, you know, the only thing I really have the passion in me to write a whole book about it is horses, but I can't do that. And he said, why? And I explained my self-consciousness. And he said, look, Sarah, passion translates. That's all that a reader wants to know is passion. Mm-hmm. And that's universal. And that really inspired me to write the book. I, I say the book Horse Crazy is not really about horses. It's about obsession. And mm-hmm. it's a reported look at a, people obsessed with this particular thing, just like you and I are. But one of the ways I had horses in my life is I've gotten a, quite a few free horses. And I often say that as big as horses are, they slip through the cracks of a life. There are divorces, there are girls who found something more interesting than their pony, which was boys. And if you are horse crazy enough and, and can ride a little bit, people will give them to you. And I have been lucky enough to have that happen, I think seven times now. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, through meeting those horses, I met some incredible characters. I actually like to tell you about one of them that one of these three horses gave me. Yeah, I'd love to hear. So I was about 21 and horseless. And I went to a barn that I grew up riding at in the Hamptons in Amagansett. And I saw a young girl riding a Arabian cross. And you and I in a hunter jumper world, you just don't see Arabians right. very much. And I was like, what is that? You know, dish face, head on the top of a lollipop kind of neck. Yeah. And I said, you know, who's she? And the girl kind of shrugged, you know, saying, well, I know it's out of place, but, but she was free. And she said to me, there are seven more <gasps> horses for free. The ladies got heartbreak. As if that explained what this meant. I said, well, the lady's got heart. So she gave me this woman's phone number and I called the lady and within an hour, she had explained that she and her husband raised horses in Tennessee Hmm. and he got in a car crash and she tended to him while he was incapacitated. And he woke up one day after she had bathed him and fed him while he was comatose. 
and he said, I want a divorce. <sighs> and he wanted to get rid of all of those horses to good homes before he got back on his feet. And by the end of the conversation, I had a horse in a trailer from Tennessee to the Hamptons. And when that thing got off the truck, it was not a janky Arabian. It was a six-year-old Dutch warm blood. Wow. And I exclaimed, you're an Adonis. <laughs> and that became his name forever after. But meeting Adonis, the horse, gave me Juliet the human. And in my book, I explore her life and how horses healed and made her whole. And actually, she became a fox hunting master all over the country and uh, ended up as my final chapter in the book. I finally met her, even though she gave me that horse. And one more after that, I had never met her. And we finally meet in the last chapter and go fox hunting across the countryside. Oh, so cool. What an amazing story. I mean, I, I think that you hear every so often about people, you know, happening upon situations like this. And it's just, it's just incredible because I think as a being horse obsessed individuals, we are, you know, constantly wanting to advocate for horses like this who, you know, whether the owner, you know, means to or not, they kind of become, they, they kind of enter this state of, you know, either they're not doing the, the job that they want or that they're intended on doing or part, part of the original plan. And so finding ways to have other horse-obsessed people come into their lives and for them to continue to have a job and a purpose and a healthy life is, I think, so important. You're so right about purpose. I often think that unlike every other pet, you know, your adorable dog, FIFA, my cat and dog, horses are only as good as their purpose. And that is sort of makes them vulnerable. And so if you're willing to love a horse just for its hoarseness mm -hmm. and to accept whatever walks off the trailer, as many a horse crazy girl is, they can have a lot of longevity. And in that way, you're protecting them. And, and I think maybe divorcing horses from their purpose and their function for us is a, a better way to care for them. Totally. But at the same time, you know, when I have my AO horse needs to step down and his purpose changes for me. I have to make plans for him too. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not uh, wagging my finger at people whose horses have changed utility for them, but it's definitely something we owe them. We owe them care. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, and whether that's not with you or with, uh, with another situation that would be, you know, a loving home and well-suited for the horse, that's just as amazing. Yeah. And they can take people on so many different journeys. I'm Totally. Yeah. I love you. <laughs> I know. So great. So what, how, what kind of like walk me through what happened to when you were, you know, talking about your book, Horse Crazy, to when you're like, you kind of went past that barrier, that fear of wanting to, you know, kind of be considered a horse crazy girl out in the public, out in the open and really kind of merge your two, I guess, passions or merge your career with your passion of journalism and horses. Yeah. So I'm very lucky that they're, they're both my passion. Neither of them feel like work. Both of them feel like play. And I realized I had been doing it all along that every time I go out in the world for the times I've been uh, to West Africa for them and Haiti and Alaska. And whenever I'm on assignment, I put away one notebook basically when I'm done and I whip out another and I go find the horses. And I realized I had been writing this book my whole 
career because in finding the horses, I, I find the horse crazies just like me. And actually, Bethany, believe it or not, before I worked for the Times, I was a spa reporter, which I know, tough work. <laughs> spas all over the world. It took me to this amazing spa in India. And it's where I met this really amazing type of horse called a Marwari. Have you ever heard of them? No. So they're an indigenous breed in India and they have curlicue ears. And we all know everything curly is better, right? Like yeah. yeah. Are better, <laughs> curly eyes are better. And so it's a horse. It's already awesome with curly ears. Wow. And I got to ride them in India. And when I came back, I was totally obsessed. And I'll read you a little bit um, about that first ride. The Marwari galloped at impossible speed, bunching and coiling underneath me. The brown and white stallion was a blur. Every few seconds, the earth dropped beneath us and the undulating trail ripped through the pulverized rock of the quarry and dipped and rose and rippled. My horse's body billowed and constricted with every oscillation of the terrain. In front of us, my guide's black horse's hooves flicked in and out of the dust, flaring up behind the stallion before us. The air was loud with the rat-a-tat clatter of hooves on unmined marble, then a rumbling of distant thunder when they hit soft-packed dirt. The officer who was leading the trail darted back a glance over his shoulder as we careened down a slope, and I realized he was checking if I was still on. By divine grace, I somehow was. Then he went faster. The breath knocked out of me as my stallion whipped through the hot air. He was going too fast for me to inhale, blasting into the air so it felt compressed and almost solid, too thick to gasp. Tears from the wind of our flight streamed from my eyes. The flesh of my cheeks flattened against the pressure as the stallion tore into the atmosphere. And then he went faster. At the edge of a green marble ravine, the guide pulled up and my horse dropped from flight to an easy walk without the hint of a jolt. The man pulled up a beat up flask of water from his saddlebag and reached across the space between his perspiring black horse and my sweating painted one to pass it to me. I spilled some out on the fur to cool my horse's shoulders before taking a deep glug. The officer grinned at me then, and I saw in his face the democratizing effect of a shared passion. Worlds apart, here in India, in the saddles, we were peers. So Ah, so good. (laughs) I get back from India, and I'm like, I need a Marwari horse. Turns out, you cannot get one in America. They're actually a forbidden export because the Indian government considers them entirely rare, like mm. a commodity they can't lose. And yet there's this lady in Martha's Vineyard who has half a dozen of them. Mm. So I was like, how the hell does this lady have rare Marwari horses like in her backyard? Yeah. So I called her up and she's like, come, come to me. I'll see you tomorrow. She's <gasps> British socialite. She's a fabulous accent. Yeah. Like, I'll see you on the farm. And so I come to see her on the farm. And I spent the weekend with her and we swam with the Marwaris and I learned about, she's been obsessed with the breed and she traveled for 20 years to India to cultivate the breed and raise its standing in uh, local eyes. It was considered kind of a native, unimportant breed, right? They want imports just like we do. Mm-hmm. And uh, she traveled many times a year after visiting on a safari 20 years ago and being guided around and she bought many of them and she got a couple out before the ban. And I said to her, okay, so you got some out before the ban in the nineties. 
why is there a two-year-old here? And how is there a four-year-old in your field? Mm -hmm. And she looks up at me. She's sitting on her carpet in her mansion. She says, Sarah, you come up with tremendous adventure when you're engaged in tremendous duplicity. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? And turns out, she has been smuggling rare Indian stallion semen in her pockets <gasps> for a oh year. Oh my gosh. Building this illicit herd with the couple mares she brought out years ago for years. But you ready for the twist, Bethany? Huh? I go to her. Why have you become the breed steward? Like, why are you Miss Indian stallion? You're just like mm-hmm. a British lady. You live in Martha's Vineyard. Like, why are you going back year after year to like champion the breed? Turns out she was not going back for love of Marwari horses. She was going back for love of the guide she met 20 years ago. Wow. Having love affairs that spanned both of their marriages and the Marwaris were just the pretext. And she said the immortal words to me captured my book. Horses are the story, but are they ever the whole story? Wow. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's incredible. And couldn't that be your and my motto too? You know, like, yeah. of course, the story, but are they ever the whole story? Here's a quick word from our sponsor, Double D Trailers. Founded in 1997, Double D Trailers has been changing the horse trailer industry one customer at a time through the use of safe materials, technologies, and innovation. The experts at Double D Trailers prioritize both horse and human safety through their patented features, such as their Safe Bump roof system, Safe Kick wall system, as well as the company's exclusive Safe Tack and Safe Tack reverse design. Customers rave about the functionality of Double D trailers and find that their problem loader horse now loads with ease thanks to the customizations available from Double D. Why settle for any old average trailer off the dealer lot when you can customize your dream trailer to fit both you and your horse's needs? Learn more at DoubleDTrailers.com. That's D-O-U-B-L-E-D Trailers.com. Or find them on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Double D Horse Trailers. Thank you so much, Double D Horse Trailers. All right, let's get back to the episode. How did you know, how'd you know when you were like done with your book? Cause I feel like you just have so many awesome stories and things that you probably just wanted to like keep including in horse crazy. At what point were you like, okay, I think this is good. Well, the thing about passion for horses is it's so expansive and so endless, right? There's yeah. so many horses in America, but that's far more than there ever were when there were our only way to get around, right? Mm-hmm. They're useless, but somehow they're of more utility for us. People right. need them. And, you know, in the book, I write about model horse collectors who collect briars. These are adults who never touched horses and compete plastic horses around the world. And, you know, so there's a big broad scope of what is horse crazy. Cause I think they're horse crazy like us too. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just didn't have the financial access to these animals. And one really important topic to me was the black cowboys that one in four cowboys in the American West were black. Actually, the West was integrated. The pioneer era was integrated and they've been totally erased from the American story. And we're having these big conversations in the equestrian world about inclusion. And my point is they've always been there. They've been removed from the narrative. And in my own father, a Holocaust survivor's almost literal erasure from this planet by the Germans who wanted to kill him, murder him. I found a parallel to that erasure of equestrians from 
the American equestrian story, black equestrian. So that became a topic in my book. And I answer your question about when it was ever done is because on that topic, I'm certainly not done. I included the black cowboys, but only after did I learn about black jockeys hmm. that the first ever winner of the Kentucky Derby was a black man. And the trainer of that horse was a freed slave and slaves actually underpinned the entire thoroughbred racing industry. In its early days, people ran the horses they owned with the humans they owned on their backs. And that didn't make it into horse crazy. So to answer, I could write 50 horse crazies because yeah. there are many of, a, of us and so many dimensions and angles. Do you think that that is in the works for potential future horse crazy books? Oh, can I reveal something? Do you want to exclusively break some horse Yes, crazy? please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually, I just signed a deal for three children's books, a series oh. on horse crazies that will be told from the horse's perspective, but they will be about these different facets. So oh my gosh. the horses that were ridden by the black jockeys tell the story of black jockeys. And then some of my own horses will tell their journeys as a subsequent book. So I have an imported Dutch warm blood and I write about him in the book. And one day I was like, how do I have a Dutch horse in New York City? And you know, yeah. a passport. And uh, so I was like, how does this work? So I actually ended up flying in the belly of a 747 with nine Dutch warm bloods, importing them. Oh. And uh, that will become a fiction, fictive children's story. And I also just signed a deal for a documentary series that will be a perspective series. So it's in development about another side of the horse world. So TV, movies, as wow. many stories as we can make. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that is so exciting. That is amazing. Real. Who knew you could become a mini horse media mogul? Literally. We're both doing it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. That is so, so cool. I mean, I feel like the question I ask every guest, I feel like it's something that you really embody and try to do with every um, area of your life, especially with the equestrian industry. But tell me if you had to pick something else that within the equestrian industry that you're super passionate about, that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk a lot about? Hmm. That's a great question. I love that you ask all your guests that. I ended up overlapping my journalism and my equestrian interests after I had this sort of book coming out. And I ended up doing a couple investigative pieces into the horse world on two sexual predators, Jimmy Williams and George Morris. And that was complex. In my 18-month investigation into George Morris, who has incredible founded allegations of child rape, I had a lot of pushback after he was banned for life by the USEF. Mm -hmm. uh, people enthralled with his power thought that because he was good at training horses, that he should be free from the consequence of his actions, which is a mild consequence, right? Most people, if you, if you uh, get convicted in time, go to jail. <laughs> All he did mm -hmm. was get banned from a, a riding club. And you know, people asked me, how could you write these things? How could you air our dirty laundry, this sport you love so much? And my answer always is because I love it. I demand it be better. I demand it improve. And, and it, it demands that. And so I'm very compelled by even the ugly stories in the writing world. Cause I think if you shine light on it, that's the way forward. And I, that's been a credo of mine. And at some personal consequence, I think there's some people who won't sell me horses now. Mm. <laughs> or maybe they'll uh, pin me uh, lower in the hunter hack, but it's worth it. It's beyond worth it. 
So how did you decide that that was the route that you wanted to take? I mean, obviously you were alluding to, you know, pushback and it's a very controversial topic within the equestrian space. Like you were, you, like you were chatting about what, what was kind of the deciding factor that made you decide to cover these stories and really kind of dive into these topics? Well, I had received some tips on George Morris's uh, criminal behavior when I had written a story about a similar figure called Jimmy Williams, who is deceased, but had raped the Olympian Ann Krasinski when she was an 11-year-old girl and had a legacy of molesting many, many other women, girls, I should say, and being really aided and abetted and protected by the industry while he did so. So after that story came out, which had been inspired by a Chronicle of the Horse story, I really decided it was time to follow up on this open secret about Mr. Morris. And I spent 18 months, I interviewed scores of people, and I found his victims. And I was shocked by the pushback and, you know, quote unquote controversy. What's controversial about credible, substantiated, investigated Mm -hmm. by independent bodies, allegations Mm -hmm. of child rape? You know, it blew my mind. And and that speaks to me about power, right? People will protect power, which is why people like Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K., Bill Cosby were allowed to operate in so much impunity for so many years because Mm -hmm. their talent gave them a bubble of protection. Talent is just another word for power. But the idea that because someone is good at training horses means they are impervious uh, to consequences of their criminal behavior is like, what? <laughs> you know. Mm. Uh, and I will say whatever controversy, Facebook groups, people crowing loudly, they're loud, but they're small. The vast majority of both the equestrian and the outside world is pretty happy to clean up pedophiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. And it definitely, it's, it's such a unique world that we live in that, that sometimes these things happen. And I think really talking about it really puts it into perspective, like, oh my gosh, like like you're so right that there are so many, there's so many feelings about George Morris and Jimmy Williams and, and all of, you know, based on their training and, and part that they played within the industry that it is so interesting that I think without even realizing it, so many people just turn blind eyes to things that have happened. And they did for years. Mm -hmm. And that is the corrupt influence of power. Everybody knew about Cosby. Mm -hmm. There are comedians who for 20 years, it's been in their repertoire of jokes. You know, I wouldn't leave my sister alone with Bill Cosby. Mm. Look at Woody Allen. You know, they're very credible allegations of molestation against him, but he makes great movies. So he's somehow Mm. protected, you know? So I feel very strongly about truth, about righting wrongs. I think those are the journalists' mantras, credos, and soul-guiding impulse. And if I had to apply it to an industry I love, and if I had to face consequence for it, so be it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that yeah, that takes a lot of guts, a lot of bravery, and we need more people. The, the victims are the brave ones. I, mm. I, I really appreciate the kind words, but you know, the victims had a, a lot to lose in coming forward. For sure. Absolutely. Hero. Yeah, that's incredible. So what does this next year kind of look like for you? Obviously, coming out of a very funky year where things looked probably a, a lot different. How did that how did everything with COVID affect your role both with the book and with your journalism and then 
how is that kind of looking now as you are, you know, we're halfway through 2021 and, and moving on um, to the remainder of the year? I was the first reporter on the ground in the outbreak here in New York, in the city of New Rochelle um, in March of 2020. I actually ended up uh, spending a large amount of time there when they locked down the whole city. And we hadn't seen anything like that yet. I ended up getting COVID very quickly after that, but it survived. And I really led the coverage in terms of what was happening to my city. You know, New York City was hit incredibly hard. Mm -hmm. I want to say it's 30,000 people in the state died. I mean, it's just been a horrifying slog. It's uh, unimaginable numbers. I remember being devastated when it was 2000 and Mm -hmm. getting around the numbers now. And so that has been a, a really interesting thing to be living through something while covering it. And I don't think that happens very often. And really horses have been my solace throughout it. Totally. Uh, work from home is enables me to sneak off and ride. I also, I think my bosses are fine with it because they know we all need something. And I ended up recently purchasing a new five-year-old AO prospect, adorable and way bigger than I thought. I think he's almost 18 hands. When <laughs> oh God, I didn't realize. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. There's a giant big baby and I have my re- semi-retired 21-year-old version of him home again too. So, you know, being in a socially distant way around beautiful horses has been such a privilege when this country's been going through so much and it's been so healing and also makes you really revitalized to get to give back when you have this healing power of horses and well let me just start about own a second mm-hmm. realizing how restorative horses were for me in this time has really made me redouble my efforts with that therapeutic riding organization mm-hmm. that i work with yeah um, it's an incredible resource uh, for children who really have nothing else right now with school being suspended for so long. And it's really made me redouble my efforts with them because horses healed me and, and, and I've been so well, you know, for, for these children who are already suffering. It's been unbelievable to see how these horses have made this year possible for them. For people who um, maybe live in the area and are looking to learn more about that facility or ways that they can help, what are some things that you feel like they need right now in order to keep growing and and helping as many people as possible? Sure. Well, when you have uh, disabled therapeutic riding, it requires five people plus the child, one, two, three, four, sorry, five, five people altogether. So you have the rider, then you have two sidewalkers to stabilize the horse, then you have a lead walker, and then you have an instructor. So think about that. We do 500 lessons, multiply it by the amount of mm. people we need. So we need a lot of volunteers. So it's gallopnyc.org. And we're always welcoming volunteers, but we also need a lot of money. We subsidize every single lesson. Some people pay, some people go entirely for free, but every lesson is subsidized. And, you know, we think about all the money we put towards our show jumping and our own pleasure to give it back it is, it, you know, it's, it's better than winning any hunter derby when you watch these kids ride. Totally. And, uh, so we're always looking for donations and underwriting. And you can even have a horse in your name and in your honor mm. at our farm. <laughs> That's like amazing. A, adopting a star or a whale. except There we go. Adorable pony in New York City. <laughs> wow, that is so cool. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time and kind of giving us a little overview of your life and how you got to where you are today and some of the incredible things that you're doing and working on. And I just thank you so much and I wish you all the best. 
Well, thank you, Bethany. I know you're, you know, a top writer and a fashionista and uh, all this great stuff you do on the internet, but you got great questions. You ever want to be a journalist? Hit me up. Oh my gosh. That is like the best compliment ever. I, I will definitely take you up on that. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.